Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. I'm joined here by Dr. Christina Cipriano. Christina, you are an assistant professor at the Yale Child Studies Center and the director of the Education Collaboratory at Yale. Prior to this assignment, you served for five years as the director of research at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Chris, you are an applied developmental and educational psychologist, and your research focuses on social and emotional learning intervention and assessment in the service of marginalized student and teacher populations through systemic examination of the interactions within their homes, schools, and communities to promote pathways to optimal developmental outcomes. You are a national expert in SEL, and you've had extensive experience working in classrooms with marginalized populations, providing training to teachers and support staff, as well as direct instruction to students. You're the principal investigator of several funded research to practice partnerships and regularly disseminate your science in both academic journals and professional development workshops for pre-service and in-service educators, as well as school personnel. You currently manage a portfolio of $12 million of research including federal and foundation grant funding, and you have 75-plus papers, commentaries, and reports published spanning top-tier peer-reviewed journals, media outlets such as the Washington Post, Education Week, PBS, the Greater Good Science Centers, and EdSearch. Your leadership in the field has been recognized by the U.S. Department of Education, earning you an appointment on the Social and Behavioral Panel of the Institute of Educational Sciences, in addition to other federal work groups that are informing the future of SEL Research Practice and Policy. As a Jack Cook Kent Scholar, you received your PhD and Certificate in Human Rights and International Justice from the Boston College Lynch School of Education, your Master's from the Hardwick Graduate School of Education, and your BA from Hofstra University. You currently serve on the Professional Advisory Board of the National Center for Learning Disabilities and Teachstone, and I could not be more happy to have you on our show today. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for that. Very, very generous introduction. It's an honor to be here with you all to talk all things SEL and education. Well, Chris, before we get started, typically on our show, what we really focus on is practitioners who have really made an impact in terms of innovation in education and created outcomes. And you are a researcher, but you have this thing called a research to practice collaborative. So before we get into some of the details about your career, what's a research to practice collaborative and, and how did you come up with it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I have the honor of of directing, we, are, we refer to it as the Education Collaboratory, and we're, we're currently housed at Yale University. And our goal is to help to advance collaborative public and open science that will promote social emotional learning, assessment, evaluation, implementation, understanding, so that all students, all teachers, all classrooms, all schools, nationally and internationally, have the you know, opportunity to thrive and benefit from SEL. As part of the education collaboratory, we have three main areas of partnership that we engage in. So the first is the centering of marginalized students and teachers in their experiences 
of SEL. And when I say marginalized, what I mean by that is looking at identities and intersectional identities. So race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, and the intersections there within in their experiences of SEL. And that's actually been kind of the longest line of my kind of partnership work and journey for almost the better part of two decades. The second area of work is really helping to advance what we call evidence and evidence synthesis in SEL. So like what is the definition of or how we operationalize like the researcher term that gets used, social and emotional learning. What are the outcomes to be expected? How were they kind of derived? How do we understand the implementation of it? And how do we move that information from kind of a place where it sits, you know, in an academy behind peer review, behind paywalls, and put that evidence in the hands of, you know, public stakeholders in the hands of teachers and leaders and families so that they can make data-driven decisions around, you know, like what we know and or what we need to know in the context of, again, school-based social and emotional learning. And then the third area of collaborative science is the co-construction of school-based SEL assessments. And so really helping to create data points that support teachers and leaders and parents in understanding a student's or a school's SEL implementation journey. So like, what is the data that you need to understand how that experience of a program or approach or strategy is benefiting a particular kid, classroom, or community? And, you know, how can we improve upon that? And so we engage in these kind of long-term co-construction collaborative processes where we help to develop and, you know, really identify, like, what is the data that would be critical here? Who needs to be involved to actually conceptualize that data? What does that look like? And then, you know, go through the whole build process so that that data is there to help support school communities. And in that regard, I I just want to call out, like, I use the term assessment, and that's what I'm talking about. But I want to acknowledge that, you know, many other folks like me who kind of sit in universities primarily may use the term assessment differently. And so really want to just like broaden our thinking about what we're talking about. We mean like measuring within schools and how we can promote data that's, you know, democratized and right back in the hands of kids and classrooms, teachers and schools. You talked about so much and everything from marginalized populations to synthesizing evidence around data-based decision-making. I recently had a guest on Sean Nelms and he ran East High over in Rochester and the University of Rochester had a really tight relationship with the Rochester School District to really take what they knew around high-quality education and start to operationalize and implement it in a real-world scenario. So Mm. tell me a little bit about like, what's the gap? as you understand it, between the university and the the main street of education in terms of understanding evidence, implementing evidence in ways that translate to student outcomes? Oh, boy. Well, do we have more than an hour? So there's a a couple of things that come to mind. So that's a big question. The first term that comes to mind when you ask me that question is that we need to understand where legacy and legacy in knowledge and funds of knowledge come into play. And so what I mean by that is at the university, There are legacies of funds of knowledge of the ways in which we like, quote unquote, do research, the way that scientists engage or researchers engage, you know, with schools or on schools. And hopefully you could hear some of my like sarcasm and saying that like there's kind of a there, there was a legacy of, you know, the ways in which researchers would engage with school partners that maybe wasn't like a totally like equal playing field. Right. Like talk like historically speaking. 
And so there's the undoing of that legacy or rather the evolution of that line of work to help to support really, you know, meaningful, equal partnership where the funds of knowledge are, you know, not living within a university and rather are shared and distributed and grounded in the community partner, grounded in the, the school and the, the partner's experience. And then like similarly within schools and thinking about school systems, there's a legacy of funds of knowledge and how we engage in data that is, you know, uh, riddled with examples of ways in which certain types of either assessment, evaluation, placement, and programming, implementation, curriculum, we could go all day, right? That, you know, have benefited and or disadvantaged some students more than others, like early and often across their school experiences, particularly in the United States, right? And so we're working to disentangle those pieces. And that's going to vary widely across generations and across the country. And so then you, you, you know, you put the two of them together and we really need to, you know, be open to evolve in how we work and what we're working on so that that learning is co-constructed and we're moving applied science forward. I think about it as applied science. I imagine I have colleagues who may not use that same term, but so that it is really relevant and still rigorous, like from a, you know, academic standpoint and like best possible methods and measures that center the experience of the community partner, of the school, of the student and the needs for their, you know, use of and data, you know, outcomes, progress, et cetera, that will help in that school-based evolution. There's a lot there and a lot of room for evolution and growth on kind of both ends. We kind of all move ourselves forward. I want to take this yeah, by silence a little bit more deeply, right? Because as a researcher and a developmental researcher and a, a person who's got his, her background in psychology, talk to me about this notion of applications. Right. Yeah. You know, we have Rand who spends a lot of time thinking about like how to apply research to the real world. Mm -hmm. uh, but the sense that the ivory tower is less kind of gung ho about applications of educational research than we are, I think, in the education space who's like, hey, just show us uh, some cool stuff and we can think about what implementation looks like. Well, OK, yeah. So there's a couple of things there. So first, maybe let, let's just like out myself. I'm a first generation high school graduate. So my dad went to school through eighth grade. I still can't believe I'm on the faculty at Yale. So when I hear comments about, you know, ivory tower or, you know, academia up there, over there on the, on the wall, I, I kind of take pause because I think there, there are increasingly more and more people like me who are in spaces and places that people wouldn't assume they wouldn't be within the academy. So we just kind of like hold that one in there. And in terms of applied science, so in psychological research and in, you know, thinking about children, adolescents and their progression, the ways in which it was traditionally studied, there was like basic science of understanding how these different types of constructs and outcomes develop over time and trends in kids and youth. And then it was applied mm -hmm. to school settings, applied to out of school settings, applied to in the family, in the university, et cetera, et cetera. And applied developmental science really helps to understand that growth in those trajectories in context as we kind of help to understand and help to improve the conditions to thrive for youth. Um, it, I'm using the term applied science in the sense that we can take the best possible measurements, the best possible ways of thinking about and knowing about how we like what we know in youth trajectories and in kind of what kind of inputs produce what, you know, the likelihood of certain kinds of outcomes for kids. Um, 
in the context of their home, school, community, at the nexus of those intersections of identities, so that we are applying it in a way that is meaningful and malleable for them in context. And so to the point about like, is it honored in the academy? Well, maybe we could talk about that offline a little bit. But generally speaking, I've been really affirmed by the recollection, recognition of public science and public writing mm-hmm. and how that is kind of helping to, at least from my little vantage point in academia, kind of change the perspective a bit on, you know, where and how you share your work. Because, you know, it's like, as I'll just say, yeah, I, I, I have to publish in peer review journals and so forth, but I really care about if the message is getting to like the classroom, the school board meeting, the kitchen table, <laughs> like that's where it, that's where it matters in terms of the type of work that my colleagues and I engage in, you know, as well as to help to support other researchers, you know, making informed decisions. You, you started to talk a little bit about your background and this leads me to the question of why SEL, right? You could have studied anything. You could have put your talents towards any field. What brought you to SEL? And, and tell me a little bit about the kind of person that you are and kind of world that you want to see as a result of your research. Thank you so much for that question. I've come to realize that SEL really like found me. I didn't have the word to call it social emotional learning until I was privileged to be on a doctorate program, but it was kind of always there. And so I can think about a couple of pivotal experiences that happened along the way. So I was in high school when the first mass school shooting happened in Columbine in 1999. And that experience of being in high school at the time of that event in the U.S., I was personally really struck by the way in which the communities around me were responding to it and what we were kind of hearing at the time. So they were kind of hardening schools and they were immediately, you know, banning certain types of music, trench coats and certain types of belts and so forth. And as someone who liked rock music, I really still like rock music. I found it to be like really missing the mark. And it, it didn't make sense to me why they were reacting in this way and were actually like addressing the problem at hand and like how to help us all feel safer. And so I, I wrote a letter. Uh, I was in student government and I wrote a letter to my local congressman, a really snarky letter, like really sarcastic letter. And that letter actually ended up winning an award. I ended up being flown to Washington, D.C. I got to meet then President Bill Clinton wow. and be one of the co-authors of the first youth house resolution, anti-violence resolution, and kind of meet all of these folks around the country who are really invested in thinking about from ways one, to help support. From this, this one, one letter. This one thing. So okay. that happens. I come back to my district, my school district, and I, you know, engage in like all of the elementary schools in the district and then all the neighboring school districts. I grew up on Long Island, New York in, you know, making these, at that point we were using deficit framing. So we'll call it for what it is, like anti-bullying pledges and so forth. We're like playing peace games and engaging in these promises and these activities in schools. And so I was like doing the work of SEL for the rest of my high school career, not ever having that term for it. And then fast forward to college, my first day of undergrad, the 9-11 tragedy occurred and I was in undergrad in New York and our campus closed down for two weeks to be kind of for first responders. Anyway, I came back to campus and I was moved by the racial and ethnic profiling that I was seeing happening in the campus and the surrounding communities that I was a part of. And so I volunteered to be a campus ambassador with Facing History and Ourselves, which is I came to learn later, one of the oldest and longstanding social learning programs. And again, 
wasn't using that word at the time. I was just being trained in how to hold space and process and, and understand difference and perspective and, you know, the intersections of culture and spirituality and like all of those things at that time. And I did that throughout college. And anyway, I could just keep going with like these stories that were happening to me or I was participating in. And then it wasn't until I was in my doctorate program at Boston College and applied developmental and educational psychology that I was like, there's a whole field of this world. Like I just kind of opened the door to me to recognize and realize. And so I really do feel as though I was called into it. And, you know, to bring it to present day, because it's been a while since I was in college, if you can do the math on those timings, I have the honor of being a mother to four absolutely beautiful children. And I see all of the potential in the science and practice of social emotional learning to create the conditions for my kids and all kids to thrive in school, to open up opportunities and the malleability of the skills and strategies that are taught within SEL and the opportunities to, you know, move us towards what I would imagine and what we know from science, many parents and families internationally would like to see in the service of safe spaces for all kids to thrive. And so there are, there are constant, consistent daily reminder of the importance of um, the work that that we're engaged in, in how they engage with each other and engage within their communities. I hear you talking about spaces for kids to thrive, and that's really specific language. And it's not always language that we think about when we think about schools or we mm -hmm. think about the outcomes of the ecosystems that we organize and learning experiences that we organize for our kids. Maybe we say we want our kids to learn. We want our kids to be good people. Yeah, to really find, you know, find those opportunities to engage deeply in connection, relationship building, you know, finding common interests and those that are unique interests that turn into passion, right, in the ways in which they kind of choose to move forward. Of course, the academics are important. I'm not going to say that that's not kind of a piece of it. Academics are, you know, definitely a currency to overall success in the current global economy that we're in. But they're not everything. Right. And so, you know, I'm just as concerned about the ways in which, you know, my children and, and children worldwide are able to kind of respect and accept each other, engage in, you know, meaningful conversation, understanding differences. I mean, let's be serious. There's lots of things going on right now that maybe suggest that the adults around them are not so capable of doing that sometimes. Right. So how can we evolve and support our students to evolve so that this next generation has the toolbox of resources to really define that connection and, and to support the conditions to thrive. And speaking of toolboxes, you have a new meta-analysis out, and it's the State of Evidence for Social and Emotional Learning, a contemporary meta-analysis of universal school-based SEL intervention. So first off, tell us a little about what is a meta-analysis? Yeah. How do we understand that? And then what so, are some things you learned? Absolutely. So a meta-analysis is a very specific type of statistical technique that looks at, it's called the corpus of studies or all of the available evidence in a given sector. And it presents specific statistics referred to as effect sizes of what is the magnitude or the strength of the outcome. So as opposed to looking at, you know, one SEL program or one region of SEL or you know, one trial of SEL in one district or one state, what a meta-analysis of SEL and what ours does is it looks at all of the available studies of evidence of SEL and then breaks down key you know, inputs, what are the different aspects of program, implementation features, and outcomes that we can expect to see. And so in our meta-analysis, we 
looked at what is the available evidence from January 1st of 2008 through the end of 2020. And that data is really important. We started with from January of 2008 because that is where the field, the SEL field seminal paper that was by Durlach and colleagues actually left off in its review. And in our meta-analysis, we looked at all experimental trials of SEL globally over the course of this time period. So we looked at the effect of over 400 studies representing over 50 countries, over a decade of evidence, and more than half a million kids ages 5 to 18 to look at what could we glean as the expected effectiveness of social and emotional learning. And I'll tell you, Dave, as somebody who is interested in and invested in advancing SEL, I'm really interested in understanding the nuance in how all these programs are different and kids are different and, you know, what are the different mechanisms there? And I was nervous in doing this review because I knew how different all the programs were and I knew the possibility that, like, we could actually not find a significant overall effect here. And so I was the first to be surprised when we found and conducted this review that it is a fancy statistical term. It's a three-level hierarchical model, which means if you put everything into the pot, is that the L effective? And the big primary answer there is yes. Yes, it is effective with a moderate effect size, which is outstanding in terms of evidence to stand on of the effectiveness of SEL. And then... We looked at 12 outcome domains, 12 contemporary outcome domains of the types of skills and strategies and psychosocial and academic outcomes that we would hope to see students benefiting from in SEL. And we found significant positive effects in nine of the 12 domains from this evidence, which is really outstanding. So we know that students who participate in SEL programs have increased skills, attitudes, and behaviors, but it's not just any types of behaviors, we actually found that there's significant effects in both their pro-social behavior, so being friends and friendly to each other, as well as their civic behavior. So for programs that taught those skills, there were benefits there, which, you know, not all programs do, but it was quite interesting to be able to see that we found that evidence, again, at scale. In addition, we found actually our largest effect size was in students' perceptions of school climate and safety. So feelings of connection and inclusion at school reduce likelihood of experiencing victimization and bullying at school and increased relationships with both peers and teachers for being involved in an SEL and participating in an SEL intervention. And lastly, I'll note that we also found that students who participate in SEL programs feel better. So from a psychosocial standpoint, we saw significant reductions in experiences of stress, anxiety, depressive symptoms, and suicidality, right? So, you know, when we think about the current state of mental health of young people in the United States and abroad, these findings are, are rather profound and quite timely in terms of the opportunities for investments in SEL. And, you know, I guess I should also mention, yes, we found evidence of the academic achievement or school functioning indicators. So, we looked at a global indicator of school functioning, which included academic achievements and tests and GPA, as well as homework completion, on-task behaviors, engagement, and attending, and found a significant overall effect, again, in the moderate range, as well as looked at just that subset of academic achievement outcomes and indicators and found significance there as well. 
So this is this is amazing and it's a monumental study. And I just want to take a second here to summarize what I heard, right? So you did a meta-analysis, which is, we understand, is a studies of studies. And you use this word corpus, right? And, and you looked at all these studies from all across the world. And you tried to estimate what I understand are effect sizes. And you really wanted to focus on notion of inputs, what was happening, implementation, how well was it happening, and outcomes, what were the results of it happening? And across all these studies, you were feeling a little bit like, I don't know, we may not see what we want to see. But being mm -hmm. a great researcher, that did not deter you from doing the due diligence and putting all these different spaces in. There was a huge amount of difference in the ways that the programs were organized and approaches. Mm -hmm. But despite these differences, nine out of 12 of the outcomes that you studied demonstrated moderate effects. And you seem to be really excited about moderate effects. Now, typically, when people say moderate, I'm like, well, you know, it was moderately good. It's moderately bad. Can you help me understand why you're so excited about moderate? Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, some of ours are even moderate to large range. You know, earlier I was talking about this idea that like we need to understand kind of the legacies of knowledge, so those that kind of are in the university versus those that are in the school systems to evolve them. And so within effect sizes, there was kind of this one particular legacy that was the gold standard of kind of what was a small, you know, medium or moderate and large effect. However, that framing did not come from school-based intervention work. That framing came from more controlled trials that were happening outside of school systems. And so in 2020, Kraft and colleagues put out kind of a contemporary new frame, a new estimate of when you're doing a school-based intervention trial, like a randomized control trial or quasi-experimental design, like what could we really expect to see an outcome using the most rigorous scientific methods that we now have available to us in both measurement and implementation science? And the reality is that those kind of larger effect sizes that we're seeing before have a likelihood of not replicating in contemporary times as a result of the way we measure what we measure, open science practices, pre-registration and so forth. And so anyway, without going down like too much of a nerd rabbit hole there, I can say with confidence that the effect sizes that we found are something to be very, very proud of in light of the word that gets used in science is the heterogeneity. So kind of the level and degrees of differences of what was put in and the ways in which we were, you know, very carefully helping to support optimizing and maximizing all of the data. So I'm a big proponent of inclusion in my life across all aspects of it. So it's not just, you know, in thinking about the ways in which we engage with people, it's also the ways in which we engage as scientists. And so from a statistical standpoint, being all inclusive of the ways in which schools across the world talk about SEL, the types of strategies and skills that are taught. So prior to this review, Stephanie Jones and colleagues' extensive work at EASL had mapped over 700 skills and strategies, over 136 frameworks of social emotional learning. In our review, we documented over 4,000, right? And that's like about, you know, it's been about five years since her initial work came out. And so it really just goes to show like how we are evolving. Our field, our world is evolving in the heterogeneity of the terminology that was used. Could I have kept the parameters or like the goalposts small in this review and maybe found a large effect size? I bet I probably could have, but I didn't do that. I kept it wide. I was all inclusive and really did it with best possible practice of open science of here's what in practice terms, here's what the public is saying SEL is. Mm -hmm. Let's analyze that effect size. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about the effect. And I encourage you all to be as well.
Well, let's take some time to talk about that because you named some areas in which the moderate effects were, were demonstrated. And I don't know that folks are always aware of the relationship between social and emotional learning or skill development and some of the things that you talked about. So uh, let's take one by one, if you would. Let's start off with civic development. I know you didn't expect me to start there, but <laughs> civic development. Let's talk a little bit about that. Social mm -hmm. emotional learning program or exposure to these programs have a moderate or large effect or small on students' ability to interact with each other, students' mm -hmm. sense of patriotism. So it wasn't patriotism. I want to call that. That was not a term. We, we did like we open coded. And so patriotism did not show up. I want to be very clear about that. But it was an increase in civic attitudes and behaviors. So like interest in participating in a civic or democratic process at school, any sort of like voting related to kind of sharing a voice or diverse perspective, recognition of the differences of opinion, perspective, origin within the system. Those were kind of what was falling within that kind of civic attitudes and behaviors. And what we found was that students who participate in social emotional learning show this significant outcome in this area. And again, it's at scale. So it's a global indicator, but you could, because I'm an open science nerd, like our team, you know, we we mapped all of it out. So someone could say, I want to see all of the studies that had civic attitudes and behaviors as an outcome. I want to look at each one of those outcomes. It's all up there on open science for folks to kind of strain their way through to kind of look at those elements. I, I want to speak to this because we're living in a time where some of the areas that you just talked about, and we're going to talk about some other areas as well, mm -hmm. as pro-social behavior and uh, academic outcomes. But some of the areas that you talked about are areas of intense need or intense concern in our society, right? This notion of participating in a democratic space, being willing to consider individual versus collective outcomes. These are things that are not just important to educators and social emotional learning, but to society itself. Absolutely. I can't say enough about that. And it'd be interesting to know, like, so we're currently doing an update right now to our review, because when you do a review like this, it's basically immediately out of date by the time you finish the analysis. And so we're doing the update and kind of definitely catching more studies that are looking at civic attitudes and behaviors as an outcome. Whether or not the study itself, the SEL program, actually has that explicit component in it. So mm -hmm. I like clarify that, right? It doesn't mean that certain programs or, or that all programs do or even should for that matter. It's rather what we see in the outcomes in terms of the ways in which kids are engaging in their school communities and those increased civic attitudes and behavior. It's almost as if the, the concepts of social emotional learning can be applied across a range of pro-social behaviors, and civic development is one of the illustrations of how social emotional concepts are showing up for young people. Yeah, I love the way you just frame that, David. Absolutely. Our research firmly would support that illustration. Well, let's move to another one of your outcomes, I think, that are really interesting here. We know learning loss is a, one of the key concerns coming out of the pandemic. I know that I have read, how can we focus on social and emotional learning when our kids are nine months behind in math and seven months behind in reading? And I actually have read specifically from certain groups that social emotional skills shouldn't be included at all in an academic context because we should be focusing on the content. But I'm hearing from your study that social emotional learning exposure has an impact on students' academic outcomes. Tell us more about that. Absolutely. We could talk about this one all day. So we found, again, moderate evidence of social emotional learning impacting student academic achievement outcomes and also their overall school functioning. So things like homework completion, on-task behavior, engagement, attendance rates, 
in addition to all of those SEL skills that you would think that the program would implement. Now, uh, a couple of things that are really important about this finding in the context of learning loss. So first, we found this robust evidence with only 17% of the studies in our sample actually reporting an academic achievement outcome. And so I have a hunch, we have a, a lot more than a hunch actually, that if more studies would have reported academic achievement outcomes, we may actually have an even larger effect to speak to in this way because we're really only looking at a small subset of this broader population of SEL programming to be able to speak to this claim. And that is kind of an interesting and really important application and opportunity as we're kind of evolving together in science and practice of having access to kind of the outcomes that are matter to us, right? If, if, if that's what matters, if we want to know how it's shifting, how it's supporting students and, you know, I, I personally have a, have a hard time with this frame of, of learning loss, but for supporting students to kind of quote unquote, catch up, as folks would say, and kind of make those academic gains. Well, we need to be reporting it in a way so that, you know, folks like myself and others can produce that research to show really the strength and the magnitude of that association. I also just want to clarify, you know, from a psychosocial standpoint, we think about what we know about learning and academic learning and memory and attention and cognitive processes, we should not be separating them, right? This is kind of, we talk about the legacies of knowledge, right? The legacy of knowledge prior would have said that like emotions are over here and like, you know, calculus is or whatever, like science is over here. But really that's not how our brain works. That's not how we learn and grow. And then when we add in other contextual factors such as experiences of anxiety, stress, systemization, bullying in school, right? The, the stress of the pandemic and the many kind of layers of, trauma and experiences that the students were differentially having across their, you know, 2020, 2021 school years and then beyond and the lingering effects and the, how many students lost loved ones or family members to that experiences of other types of marginalization or racism happening across their states, countries, school system. There's a lot there, That's a lot for any one of us to be navigating. And so we know there's strong science to support the connection between investing in students' social, emotional health and well-being concurrent to production of academic achievement. And I have a hunch that if we had more academic achievement outcomes at the proximal level, we would be able to even speak to this with much stronger magnitude of effect. I know I'm really excited about this. And if you'll indulge me, I'd like to talk about the outcome around mental health, because that's another thing that we're really concerned about coming mm -hmm. out of the pandemic. And I'm still amazed, Chris, as we look about this research, we're talking about one set of skills that not only impact your academic outcomes, your, your civic mm -hmm. attitudes, but now even your mental health. Tell me more. Yeah. yeah. So our research found that students actually feel better. So like globally feel better, psychosocially. So what does that operationalize as? It's the outcomes of like reductions in anxiety reductions of experiences of stress, depressive symptoms, you know, a decrease in what is referred to as externalizing behaviors, as well as reductions in suicidality, among some others across our research. And so when we think about the types of skills and strategies that are taught in SEL programs, as I mentioned, it's a, a pretty large swath. They tend to generally fall within a five-factor framework produced by the Collaborative for Academic Social and Emotional Learning, or CASEL. But within that frame of what are these kind of larger buckets skills, when we start to know ourselves and understand the ways in which our affect, our emotion are showing up in how we engage, and we start to recognize the ways in which affect is showing up in others around us, 
And then we have those skills and strategies to help to monitor and regulate and apply that affect in productive and healthy ways so that we can make responsible and healthy decisions in support of ourselves and others, you know, engage in different types of behaviors that are productive and useful for our learning, our friends. We could go on and on and on. There's a, a seemingly an endless amount of possibilities there. And each and every one of these studies, you know, in isolation looks at like a little piece of it, right? Not all of them look at everything. That would be impossible. But when you look at them across, when you look at this huge corpus of studies and science that's available, I mean, the, the results are rather profound in being able to say that, like, why wouldn't you invest in this type of programming in light of the possibility and promise of these outcomes? Chris, you got to color me skeptical. I'm hearing that suicidality, which is one of the most extreme displays or representations mm -hmm. of mental health crises, yeah. will be reduced not by increasing the number of psychiatrists or psychosocial mm -hmm. interventions in terms of psychomedical, but by just teaching skills. I, I, I think that's hard. Well, to well, let's tease that apart a little bit. I, I appreciate that. And I, and I, too, you know, I look at this with a very rigorous lens on. So social emotional learning from the types of interventions that we studied in this were universal. So tier one or prevention science program. The key word here is prevent. Right. If you have the skills and strategies and you have, you know, increased safety within your school system, you are less likely, you being students are less likely to move into places where they're at a tier two or tier three level where more kind of significant mental health supports would be warranted. Right. So it's helping to kind of buffer those conditions so that at tier one, for all kids, we have access to, you know, healthy relationships and a safe space to learn and knowing how to manage our emotions in ways that are kind of meaningful for our school day and the ways in which our peers are responding to us, right? Creates those mechanisms, those moments. I'm not saying any one of them, like our research is not saying that like any one type of strategy is going to produce that outcome, but rather when you look across studies and say, if you have these conditions available and students are participating, again, universally in this type of programming, you see evidence of significant reduction. Well, one more question about this, because the, that universal space, again, I'm a little skeptical. Don't you think we should wait for students to show us their need? Because it takes so much effort to demonstrate or to organize a universal intervention. So what if we just waited for our students to show us that they needed a social emotional intervention that takes so much more time off of our staff, don't you think? Oh, goodness. Thank you for the question, Dave. So there is not my research, other research by Belfield and colleagues that points to kind of from an economic standpoint, the resource allocation, that is more cost effective to invest at the universal level. And in fact, every $1 investment in a universal school-based SEL program can produce $11 benefit thereafter. And so when we think about the resourcing and support services at the tier two and tier three level, Although it may have been kind of a, we'll go back to this term legacy that I brought up earlier on, an older way of thinking about the servicing of students and student needs and diversity of need, that there is a kind of a smaller proportion that would require such support and services. If we flip that and think about the ways that we can preemptively support students to have the skills and strategies available to navigate emotions before they become big emotions in a way that, 
you know, moves them into a space where they would require additional trained mental health support and so forth. We're, you know, doing a, a public service for all of our kids. Wow. So it sounds like you have a vision here of, of an approach to social and emotional learning in which all students are equipped with the kinds of skills and interactions that allow them to promote thriving, that word that we came back to in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like research would demonstrate that this is an approach that has some effect at scale. It does. It absolutely does. And then some, and I am thrilled and excited to say like we are, you know, engaged in a number of large scale partnership studies right now. And this update to the evidence synthesis edition to like both understand the nuance. So how do we recognize the diversity and the differences in all those types of programs? So what kinds of programs and types of skills work best or in support of certain types of needs in schools and communities and regions and countries and so forth, as well as like, what are we then seeing? What are the trends that we're seeing at scale? Right. So it could help to, again, support us to advance the science and practice of SEL. Now, last question on this, Chris. I know you talked about nine significant outcomes. And one of the key ones that you had reflected on was this notion of perceptions of school climate and culture, okay. reductions in bullying, increases in perceptions of safety. And I, I understand that school climate is mostly an effect of the school itself, right? That the, mm -hmm. the way that the school is organized, the systems and structures. But I'm hearing you tell me that the SEL skills of students seems to be related to their perceptions of school climate. Right. They feel safer at school. They feel then safer to learn at school. They feel more connected. They are also less likely in this scenario to have experienced bullying or victimization, marginalization. So we looked at school climate as a perception of school climate rather than it being the school indicator. That would be more of a kind of aggregate level. We really wanted to, in our experimental design, disentangle the individual student and kind of center that experience of the SEL program. We anticipated there would be some positive effects here. The work of uh, Juliette Berg and colleagues over the past couple of years has been continuing to move the field forward and kind of thinking about the role of school climate and how school climate can be this moderating factor in many of the types of outcomes you want to see for youth. But to be able to find so very clearly and, you know, effect size over 0.3 that students' perceptions of school climate at scale, you know, increase so significantly and positively. And then when we look and distill down to like, what were those measures to see these perceptions of inclusion and connectedness and relationship, it really speaks again to the potential for benefit from, you know, having engaged in an SEL program. That's incredible. I mean, everything from school climate to mental wellness and thriving to mm -hmm. pro-social behavior to academic outcomes is presented or I should say justified or even solidified by mm -hmm. the work that you've done with thousands and thousands and thousands of studies. And I want to say this one more time, Chris, and you said I could have included less studies to get a stronger outcome, but yes. I really wanted to do this in the most rigorous way possible. Yes, exactly. And, you know, on that note, I'll say in our review, only about 22 percent of the studies reported that their implementation was moderate to high. And then so we talk about like quality of implementation, right? We are, as you know, applied practitioners ourselves, right? We are invested in highest quality offering. Older science may have said, we only want to look at the effects of the high quality implementation. And that's where you'd see the largest effects. And of course you would, right? But that's not reality in the ways that schools operate. It's not that people are intentionally not implementing with the highest quality. Rather, it's 
there's a lot going on in school. And so sometimes the asks of certain types of programs or interventions may be incongruous to, you know, the ways in which the school is kind of seeking to engage in youth. So to then think about it that way and say, well, you know, they were the school was doing or the programs were doing the best that they could in the conditions of like what is real in their school day to then see that positive effect is, again, this is why I am so excited about this. And I'm just keep trying to share with folks, really, the science is all here. And so I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to share it. And now, Chris, just for the sake of clarity, we've talked about a number of these significant outcomes, but I'd love to get through all nine significant outcomes that you demonstrated as the result of your study on the state of evidence of SEL. Tell me what we got. Absolutely. So we saw increases in students' social-emotional skills, their attitudes and beliefs, their pro-social behaviors, their civic behaviors, their peer relationships, their school functioning, which includes academic achievement, and their perceptions of school climate. And we saw significant reductions in their externalizing behaviors and their experiences of emotional distress. From one approach, which is social and emotional, I can't understand why anybody wouldn't stop what they're doing right now and think about how can I invest in universal SEL programs? I'm with you, Dave. Totally with you. 11 to 1 return on investment in terms mm -hmm. of what we put in versus what we get out. Absolutely. And I'm thinking about if I were a school or a district, how can I take this research and start to do something about it in my own area so that I can get some of these outcomes that you demonstrated in your research? So one, we have robust, significant evidence to the effectiveness of implementing universal school-based SEL programs. So adopting programs at your school, like this isn't a question about should we it really now turns to like a which one, which one will we adopt and how will we do it and who will be responsible for it? So I encourage folks to move in that direction and seek guidance from organizations like Castle and others who have great you know, frameworks and guidelines and decision planning for districts and states. In addition, our research found that teachers are the strongest implementers of universal SEL programs. When teachers implement the program, they have more robust and significant effects. This was a, a moderator, it's a term that was used. And so that means investing in adult development and adult support of social emotional teaching of how to implement would be a great kind of way to engage professional development funds as well as for pre-service educators in their training and support. And lastly, I'll note our results were across K to 12. So there isn't this thing that like SEL or emotion only belong for the little kids or in elementary school. We found effects across the academic continuum. So if you are already adopting an SEL program, thinking about the ways in which SEL and kind of that shared language and support of students' social, emotional health and well-being can be carried from elementary to middle to high school is of paramount importance. Well, Dr. Cipriano, I am convinced. I'm a guy who likes to look at evidence and the evidence that you've given me today tells me that SEL is one of the key elements of what it means to be educated in 2023 and beyond. And as we're looking at some of the effects of the pandemic and mm -hmm. using this framing of thriving, Sounds like SEL is something that we need to be investing in across our country so that all students can thrive and get some of the outcomes that you put forth in your paper. I hope so. For the betterment of all of our kids, I certainly hope so. Thank you so much for the opportunity to connect with you about it today. It's an honor to contribute. And thank you, Dr. Cipriano, for the time that you spent on this research study. And we look forward to seeing more schools adopt some of the outcomes that you have demonstrated in the work that you've done. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.